1: Podcast Network presents, this is Protecting America. Now here's Emmy-winning journalist Rita Cosby. And welcome to another edition of Protecting America. I'm Rita Cosby. The recent arrest of suspected Gilgo Beach, Long Island serial killer Rex Heurman brought relief, but it has also shaken many people as he was living in in the area all those years, not too far from where the bodies were discovered. Andy worked as an architect in New York City. So what are we learning from that case and others that are like it? Well, joining us now is Wendy Whitman. She is an acclaimed longtime TV executive. She's also a producer and also an on-air reporter for many years, highly regarded on CORE TV and, of course, on The Nancy Grace Show on HLN, where I had the pleasure to work with her. And she is also an expert on the subject of murder in America. She is the author of a brand new book, which is called Retribution, and it's written from the killer's point of view. It is a follow. Up to her other big book, which was called Premonition. And Wendy Whitman joins us here on the podcast. Great to have you,
0: Wendy. Thank you so much, Rita. It's a pleasure to be on.
1: You know, you have such experience and such a depth of knowledge on these important topics. Obviously, not just Gilgo Beach, but so many others. We're going to get to your book in a moment, too, because it's the basis, all your experience that you put in these novels, but really based on. On your experiences, let's start first off with Gilgo Beach. It's a case that you and I covered together uh, when we did a lot of work together. I was so honored to work with you at HLN. Tell me about your thoughts first off with Rex Herman. Does he fit the typical profile of a serial killer?
0: Well, that's a great question because you know I think especially in cases where it takes a long time till the person's arrested and people are wondering for for even a decade or longer. Um, Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, was 40 years um, waiting to find who it is. So it's like you expected to be like the boogeyman or some total loser or a very creepy looking person. And from what I've seen from Dennis Rader, BTK, who had very similar background, and Joseph D'Angelo, these were all married men with kids. They had never gotten divorced until they their spouses found out. They managed to hide it from their families. So I would have to say, from what I've seen of a lot of the very big, well-known serial killers, he does fit the profile. And um, if we want to get into BTK right now, BTK himself reached out and said, I knew he was going to be like me and we're the same age. And, you know, we were the same age at the arrest and we were both married with two kids. And it's like his little buddy, you know, like he's sort of proud that he found another one. You know what I mean? And I think, um, I think that they managed to weave their murderous impulses into their lives and people always expect them to be something different than what they are they literally are killers among us that's what they are
1: do you believe that he was maybe a copycat of BTK just as you talked about the uh, BTK kind of saying yeah he was
0: mimicking him i don't from the way that from what i know so far of the actual crimes and the actual murders i don't know if he i mean he certainly could have been i think the age is a coincidence at their time of arrest, because they're not the same age. Actually, BTK is older now, in the late seventies. They are both married with two kids. That's certainly a coincidence. Um, they were longtime serial killers. BTK did it for much longer, from the seventies to the nineties. Um, and they both were caught. You know, BTK sort of started to taunt the police after he had gone dark for a while. And I think he's a perfect example, just like you reached out about the Gilgo killer, you know, suspect, and all that, I think he's someone who definitely craves attention. And we did cover his sentencing, Dennis Rader. And you can see how much he liked going through each detail of each crime, but he was getting all the victims confused. It was very creepy, his whole sentencing. But I, yeah, I think that, um, I think these guys, um, it's, it's, it's really hard to know if he did a copycat killing. I don't think, you know, Dennis Rader used to say that certain nights, he would just get so wired that he and worked up that he knew we had to go kill someone and sometimes when he was lazy he would literally go just a few blocks away and kill a neighbor so I don't so he did say he was motivated motivated by sexual impulses which is obviously similar to Herman I would think um I, I but again it it is very hard to know if it was a copycat killing or not I think they just had a lot in common You know it's
1: really disturbing Wendy in this case of the Gilgo Beach the suspect Rex Heermann Police had just said recently that he was engaged in disturbing behavior when they were tailing him. Um, we know that he met some of these women. I think it was through Craigslist, they were escorts. Right. It seems like how much does sort of the sexual desire um go with the killings tied, whether it's human or some of these others?
0: Well, I think that's interesting because I was I was out in California and doing some events for the book, and a question I was asked is the difference in gender. And how many how many women murderers there are, and how what percent of murders are committed by women versus men, and it's overwhelmingly committed by men. And you know we were saying about the gender gap in that instance, and I think um, not that women don't have sexual impulses, but they don't. It's not quite the same in terms of violence and that kind of thing. So I think that that um, it does seem to me that a lot of a lot of male serial killers, whether they commit rape or not, and obviously most of them do, like BTK did, did rape his victims and things like that. Or, and, and Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer, went back after he killed them and, and raped them when, once they were dead. I mean, you know, they, these are really sick guys. So I think from what I've seen, most male serial killers seem to be motivated by some kind of sexual impulse.
1: Why is it you just brought up uh, the disparity, too, between the two? Are there some cases that you've covered in the past where it's sort of an anomaly, uh, where where they didn't sort of fit the mold that you remember?
0: Um, in terms of the gender, men, women versus men or just men, men in general? Bo- both, both, in general? both,
1: both in general. Yeah, in general.
0: Well, I always say that, that women, when women do commit murders, and the only known serial killer to me, female serial killer, I think there was one in Canada, but I Eileen mean, Mornos is obviously the best known one in the United States. Um, I think that um, I think that um, answering that question, that women just women killers tend to kill their children, sadly, or usually they're abused. And I think men um, are seem to be more driven. So obviously, those are the mode from what I've seen from female killers. The motivation seems to be something with the relationship thing, either their children, you know, some emotional thing, their children or their spouse. Men uh, uh, very often seem to kill strangers, not that they're on personal killings as well, but the serial killers seem to, and, uh, and they do often prey on sex workers. Gary Ridgway did, obviously Herman d- is a suspect at this point, did, and Dennis Rader did not, but he did, he, he did rape his victims and have sex with them. So I, I go back to that, that I think that the difference in the genders, if I'm answering the question correctly, is that women seem to have an emotional connection, whether it's to a, a spouse, significant other, or children, and men seem to um, be motivated by some kind of a twisted sexual impulse. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss.
1: You mentioned the sex workers too. Um, is yeah. there something, you know, some people sadly believed that maybe in the case of this, you know, Rex urman, the suspect here in this case, Uh, or whoever was behind uh, you know whether it's him it looks like obviously the evidence is pointing in that direction or or there may be others for some of the other ones but the fact that they were escorts um, maybe that they wouldn't uh, be able to be traced as well or they weren't watched as well or or you know maybe the the police uh, or whatever the case is wouldn't have all the records or something on them is there something to be said sadly of why they were targeting them
0: Oh, absolutely! I don't think it's just the sexual impulse part of it. I think that if you're if you're trying to get away with murder, and these serial killers, the three I've been mentioning, all did get away with it for a period of time, which I think is part of the fascination of people with them. But I think they um, they absolutely um, um, they absolutely um, you know want to get away with it, and they they or very often they are able to get away with it for a period of time. And I think that they so preying on people. Um, that are less on the radar or that, that people just wouldn't care as much about. They, they figure, you know, and ironically, though, we did Gary Ridgeway's sentencing hearing, in Green River Killer and their relatives showed up. These girls were all, you know, prostitutes and sex workers, most of them and stuff like that. But their families did show up for the hearings, so they weren't not missed. Most of them were missed. But I think obviously the odds are better. And I think a lot of these serial killers are very smart. And they they want to get away with it, so I think they often do um, think. If, well, if we pick on someone like this, no one's going to miss them, and it's much less likely that I'll get caught. And it does seem to work for a, a lot of them, you know, for a period of time.
1: Yeah, which is so sad, you know, because obviously all those people have you know brothers, sisters, parents. Right. Um, and I'm happy to see that a number of them have been coming out um, in, in the Gilgo case and speaking out, and, and many of them were unwavering in trying to get justice. Um, and and bravo, by the way, also to the law enforcement that stayed with it in the Gilgo case because it, it took a long time. But they said, OK, let's revisit it again. They, they obviously felt emotionally connected to it, which was really powerful. What about the yeah. red flags? What are what are some of the red flags in many of these cases?
0: I think um, for these serial killers, you would think And again, it's hard to believe there aren't any red flags Um, in the case of like Dennis Rader, Dennis Rader, Joseph D'Angelo, and apparently Herman, who's again, still just a suspect. Apparently their families had no clue. And Carrie Rawson, who was um, Dennis Rader's daughter, wrote a book a few years ago about her father and being the daughter of a serial killer and the effect it has on the family, which I just find fascinating that someone would be you know, would be able to live a du- truly a double life. And that's what fascinates people as well about serial killers like this, that they can go to work, have a job, have a, quote, stable marriage. These guys were not divorced, raise kids. Gary Richard used to go to soccer games and, and then sneak out and kill somebody and get away with it for years. And it is hard to wrap your brain around how they do it and the effect it has on their families. So the red flags, obviously to the families it weren't there because it doesn't really appear genuinely. Cause a lot of people, when BTK was arrested, they said, Oh, that's impossible. His wife didn't know. How could she not have known? But it does appear. She never knew she, that he was able to hide it from her. Now he himself had a reputation of being like a grouchy kind of pain in the ass kind of guy. He was a compliance officer. And I don't think he was liked, you know, but it, that's not a really a red flag that would indicate he was a serial killer. I think, um, Probably in like a case like Jeffrey Dahmer, who was more of a odd kind of a guy. Um, I'm sure people who knew him well saw signs. I think um, I'm sure they're probably you know everyone saying oh they can't believe it it's him how could it be him that always seems to be the reality. but it, it is hard to believe that people who closely with these people for decades even if even if some other family just never got it it's hard to believe nobody saw anything odd about them. But odd is different than being a serial teller. So the red flags, are, you know, don't seem to always be there. Um, you would think they would be there, which is why I thought that was an interesting point. But it, it, it certainly appears with the families that they're, in those three cases that I keep mentioning, the families the, from the spouses to the kids were completely clueless and were shocked to find out their father or their husband was doing this.
1: Yeah, it, it is stunning. What about the case? Also, one of the most famous ones, uh, Ted Bundy, um, who ultimately right. admitted to uh, to doing. I think he confessed to thirty murders. He committed yeah. in seven states between nineteen seventy four and nineteen seventy eight. Um, that case just shocked the country.
0: Yeah, and again, it goes back to like he was good looking. Scott Peterson was good looking. Carrie Staner who did the Yosemite murders, was good looking. And I've been saying this in recent interviews that. Um, It used to be the stereotype, even in in fictitious, you know, crime thrillers on TV, the killer was always creepy and so obvious it had to be the killer, you know, in the story, you know, that's the killer. He's creepy and weird and all that. Now, the fictitious things like you and um, based on a true story, which I think is either on Apple or Peacock have the killer being this cool, good-looking guy. So they're sort of catching up with reality because it's not that everyone is good-looking or everyone is not good-looking, but they're a surprising number. And I think people, people still are super, have a superficial thing to them. And most people, for a very long period of time, never thought a killer could be good-looking and charming and all that, but it's just the opposite. They use their looks and charm to get their victims. And I think Ted Bundy was the first to sort of break through that, Typical stereotype of the creepy killer. And then I think Scott Peterson came on board and um, Carrie Stainer, which is a lesser known case, but was a terrible case. So it's um, anyone can be a killer, you know, and and a lot of them live totally normal. uh, um, They appear to be living normal lives, but they're obviously not living normal lives.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That sort of double life, uh, that whole other sort of hidden life. Um, Wendy Whitman, you just wrote a really powerful book. It just came out. It's called Retribution. And this is, of course, a sequel to Premonition, which was a huge hit. Um, Tell us about how your background... And you have covered, as we've talked about, some of the biggest cases uh, in American history in modern times related to killers, how you wove all that in, um, in your book, your sort of true crime experiences into a novel, but making them more real life. How did you use all that and, and put it into this latest one?
0: Well, I originally I was going to write, I thought I would write nonfiction, and then I thought it'd be a lot more fun to write fiction, but I still wanted to bring certain parts of my experience covering crime to light. So also I go, so I could do it through the protagonist. So she was Lucy based on myself and I did it through her thoughts in the first book and then a lot of through the killer's point of view in the second book. And it all worked very well for me. And I was able to bring in cases like Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom, the couple that was killed, carjacking killed in Knoxville, and the Wichita case of the Carr Brothers, cases like that that haunted me, that were really awful murders that never got the media attention I thought they deserved. So I was able, it, it, it dawned on me how I could weave that into the into the book. And also then it gives the, the books themselves a touch of realism, because I have a fictitious serial killer in my book that was inspired by real serial killers. So I find because he he reminisces in part of the book about about, um, you know, like Dennis Rader and Danny Rowling. And these are like his heroes. So I, th- I thought that was like an interesting way to do it, like to have a fictitious serial killer um, being motivated by real serial killers. And I think it does give the book a touch of realism versus not mentioning any real cases. So um, I'm, I was very happy with the way that worked in both books. And I did it more from the killer's point of view in the second book. Um, but it was it was a good technique for me.
1: Yeah, because you go from the protagonist, uh, Carrie, is the character in the first book, and then right. here you get inside the mind of the killer. How tough was that for you, and and how did that feel to do that?
0: It was um, it was surprisingly not that tough because I think if you've covered crime for this long, you do start to understand how these people think, what motivates them, um, how you know just what what how you can sort of predict what they're going to do and things like that. So it, it really wasn't hard, but I. I Mentioned this in several interviews. There was a there's a particular scene in the book where he kills this girl. And as I was writing it, you know, they say if you write really strong characters, the character does sort of take over. And I initially I thought that's so silly when people say that. But when but but it happened, and I was writing that scene, and all of a sudden I understood exactly what he was going to do. It was weird. It was like coming from somewhere else, and it was creepy when I was writing it. But I could I knew what he was going to do, and it sort of took on a life of its own. So that was a very interesting experience for me, writing that one scene. Um, So, yeah, and then a friend of mine said, well, it's sort of like acting. That's what actors do. They sort of become the character, and then they're sort of creeped out by what they're doing if they're they're playing a a weird character or a killer or something like that. So that's how, when I was writing the book, but I I do like bringing true stuff. Um, So it's a great fit for true crime fans and for just crime thriller fans. Life's better with American Family Insurance.
1: Now, did you stay up all night? I mean, could you go back to sleep after you got in the character? I've written books, and, you know, you get in the character. When you were writing this book, were you, did, you, did you toss and turn afterwards to try to go
0: to bed? It was, um, there was certain, I, I do better at night in terms of writing, so I did used to write fairly late. Um, I think... Um, yeah, I, some is, uh, you sort of get stirred up because, like, uh, especially it's not so much the fictitious things I was writing. Although that one was just creepy. Um, it was more when I was writing about Dennis Rader or Gary Ridgway or Danny Rowling, That that kept me up because uh, those are real things, and I think I sort of wanted them in the book to wake people up and realize there is a touch of realism here. But those are the things that kept me up at night because those cases are so awful. Um, it, it's hard to write about them and then just go to sleep.
1: Absolutely. Why do do you think certain cases make the headlines? You talked about some of the cases before that didn't get as much attention as they deserved. And obviously, uh, every case like this should get attention, especially those that are not solved. So we can get attention to to get them solved and, and try to bring some comfort to the families. Why do you think some make the headlines and some don't get enough?
0: Um, you know, I always say like with Scott Peterson, for every Lacey Peterson, there are unfortunately loads of women a year who get murdered by their boyfriends or husbands and no one ever hears about them. Um, I think sometimes it's a local reporter. I think the, a reporter Modesto picked up the story and, you know, she had the big smile and was pregnant and he was good looking and it had all these combination of factors why it blew up. I, so, that, so that's how I explain how certain cases actually blow up. Some cases... Um, people, I think, consider them too controversial. It might depend on racial factors. It could depend on um, the local area, how people react to to it. If it's a known person in the like, I mean, Dennis Rader was hardly a local hero. He was just a known kind of compliance thing, and nobody was sympathetic to him, for sure. But there could be a case, I'm assuming, where, because uh, we've proven that anyone could be a murderer, or it could be somebody maybe who wasn't even respected in the community, and people would say, oh my God, you know, how can we do this, or whatever. So I think there are, there, are, there are clear reasons why a case does blow up. And again, every case doesn't blow up. It's like Casey Anthony blew up. You know, there, You can understand when you look at those cases, why they blew up. Cases that get missed, there, You know, it could just be the news cycle or it could be that I think it often is just a controversial that 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 like even the way we selected cases, if we thought it was too gruesome for TV or things like that. So I think there's a gruesome factor in terms of covering a trial the way we did and um a factor of of a certain amount of controversy that sometimes media wants to stay away from.
1: Yeah, no, you're right, and it's so interesting. Some of the cases I, that you and I even covered together, it was like wall to wall. You know, I mean, you couldn't walk down the yeah. street without someone saying, "Hey, Rita, what did you think of the latest development?" Or Wendy, what did you think of? Right. Uh, what can people learn from this new book, uh, which, by the way, is getting rave reviews? Again, everybody, it's called Retribution, and it is a, a thriller. Uh, and based on, as you heard, sort of real stories, but a novel, but a page turner with a twist. Uh, I'm not going to give it away because everybody has to read it. But what can they learn um, from reading your book?
0: I think they can learn that um, not to scare people, but that we are living in a world where there's a certain percent of the population are sociopaths or psychopaths, and they're always actively looking for victims. And there are some safety things you can do that might save your life. However, as I've said this many, many times, there are many victims who have just found themselves in the wrong situation at the wrong time. It's completely hopeless. And even in retrospect, there's nothing they could have done to prevent themselves from being murdered. And I think I think what I want people... I did dedicate the book to Tracy Powell, who was Danny Rowling's last victim, and to Shannon Christian. And then I make a note into all the others. And I wanted both books to sort of be a tribute to murder victims because that's what always motivated me to go into this career covering crime to begin with. So that's really where my heart is. And um, I want people to take away that what it really means. Like the first book to me was sort of like a whack over the head for people to wake up and realize what it really means to be murdered, that you've lost your life, your life's been stolen from you and what your final moments were like and how awful it is. And that that really was my goal with the first book, And the second book, since I'm trying to sort of do it more from the killer's point of view, is to warn people that there are psychopaths out there. A lot of them are charming and you just have to have your, you know, not run around being super paranoid, but you just have to use common sense and try to um, protect yourself in in a normal way.
1: Very, very important message that I think everybody um, can learn from, certainly. And and beautiful that you are honoring those people, those victims um, who don't have a voice but have a voice through you now. Um, and you've always been such a fighter for justice in this country. That's why I love you so much, Wendy Whitman. Um, everybody, be sure to subscribe and share this podcast. Wendy, um, what are revealing and powerful podcast, um, and everybody, the new book, uh, with a very important message, as you just heard from the great author herself, Wendy Whitman. Wendy, thank you. A real honor to have you here.
0: It was an honor to be on. Thank you so much, Rita. I really appreciate it.
1: And everybody, I'll be back soon with another great edition of Protecting America. And of course, you can catch me every weeknight, 10 p.m. to midnight, on the legendary WABC Radio. This is Rita Cosby, and thanks for all you do to protect America.